This episode could be triggering for sensitive listeners and contains mature content. It may not be suitable to all listeners. Should you need any emotional assistance, please see the show notes for telephone numbers that you can call. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the podcast. Any content provided by contributors such as the host, guests, bloggers, sponsors or authors are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, group, club, organization, company, individual or anyone or anything. Before we get started, we got our first five-star review on Apple Podcast. Quote, I love this podcast and can't wait for Wednesdays for the next episode. The research is incredible and the storytelling is gripping. Thank you for that, Alliance 62. I make my way to him. He prays, then dunks me. Nothing happens except that I swallow a mouthful or two of brackish water. And then, it's over. He lets me go and I stumble to shore, stunned. I'm alive! God has obviously decided to defer his punishment to another day. Phew! That night, as I lie in bed going over the day's events, I feel the first seeds of doubt about Uncle Erlo's divinity. If God speaks to him, how come God didn't tell him to not baptize me? Is he as in touch with God's proclamations and commands as he claims to be? What am I missing here? Something doesn't add up. Erica Bornman, Mission of Malice This is Decoding Cults, and I'm your host Paul Z. You are listening to the Kwasi Sabantu Mission, Part 4. In this episode, we are going to delve into a few more of the practices at the mission and at some of the effect that it has on those who have left the mission. All of the information that I have used for this episode come from news sources, mostly News24. I also used the KSB Alert website, which has articles and first-hand accounts of people who were at or associated with the mission, the KSB website, the book Mission of Malice, My Exodus from Kwasi Sabantu by Erika Bornman, and the book Is This a Genuine Revival? A Missiological Investigation About the Revival Among the Zulus by Albert Pylon. Within the Christian faith, there are many different denominations. They all, however, share the practices of baptism, christening, and communion, among others. The terms baptism and christening are mostly used interchangeably within the Christian faith, but there is a subtle difference between the two. I found a pretty straightforward explanation between the two on thepuregift.com. On baptism, they describe... Baptism is really a sign that you belong to Jesus, that you believe in him and want to follow him and his teachings. In the case of baby baptism, the parents believe on behalf of the child and state their intention to raise the child to know and love God. 
The baptism ceremony usually occurs during a regular Sunday church service. The parents and godparents are invited to the front of the church by the pastor and ask some questions about faith on behalf of the child and their intentions in raising the child in faith. The parents and godparents respond together. The child then has water sprinkled or poured onto their forehead to baptize them. This is the main part of the baptism slash christening service. The actual baptism. Some churches practice full immersion for a second or two, like the Eastern Orthodox Church. And then, on the subject of christening, they say the following. A christening service is nearly identical to a baptism service, but may vary slightly from church to church. It may include a part in the service where a Christian name is given to a child. However, all christenings include the vital act of baptism with water and the Holy Spirit. Communion, or as it is also known, Eucharist or Holy Communion, is the symbolic practice where a congregant eats a small piece of bread or a wafer which symbolizes the body of Christ and then sips red wine or grape juice which symbolizes the blood of Christ. This practice stems from the Last Supper where Jesus had a final meal with his disciples before he was crucified. Each denomination, however, have their own subtle differences when applying these practices. I was raised within the Dutch Reformed Church and was christened as a baby and we partook in communion, or as we called it in Afrikaans, nachmal, once a month. When I was around 17, we attended classes with our minister for a year and were then confirmed, thus becoming full adult members of the church. In my mind, partaking in communion is between you and God and is a personal choice. When you do partake, you are accepting that Jesus sacrificed himself for all Christians. As the Stegen family comes from a Lutheran background, I reached out to a Lutheran bishop to ask him about these two practices within their denomination. The bishop explained that baptism is a gift of God's grace. Children are baptized and adults who have newly come into the faith are also baptized. These adults, however, are taken through lessons which equip them with the understanding of the importance of what they are about to promise. Children receive a sprinkling of water on their foreheads, but adults can choose the sprinkling or a full-body immersion. They also practice communion between once and twice a month, depending on the church. In the past, only adults partook in this, but in the last few years, anyone who has been baptized, including the children, are allowed to partake but the children receive grape juice instead of wine. I asked the bishop if anyone was ever discouraged from or not allowed to partake in communion. He explained to me that in his 30 years there, there had only ever been one time where a congregant was discouraged as they needed to reconcile their conduct with themselves and their family. This person, working together with the church, reconciled themselves and were able to partake. At Kwasi Sabantu, communion and baptism were not practiced regularly. In fact, I was led to a letter on KSB Alert written by Karl Heinz Wenker. He was part of the German congregation and had left the church in 1999. In this letter he states, The working of the Holy Ghost was also just a reality to the KSB South Africa congregation 
through the revival. The love towards Israel and its nation was never taught. Communion and baptism were ministered for the first time in the KSB Germany congregation in the summer of 1999. I visited KSB South Africa more than 12 times and never experienced these ministries either. When I asked some of the ex-members about baptism, Kurs Grief kindly explained it to me. You see, baptism was indeed not a regular practice, even when babies were born. What would happen is that the mamas would receive a prophecy that baptism was to take place. They would then pray on it, and then the youth and young adults would be called in and the announcement would be made. In her book, Mission of Malice, Erika Borman describes how they would be told to get their lives right with God and with each other to be able to be baptized. During this time, the co-worker would announce that they all need to remember that, quote, if you know of someone's sin and you don't confess it, you are as guilty as they are in the eyes of God. Quirst described that people would be scrutinized. He used the term ukushuka, which in Isizulu is the term used where they treat skins or hides. At KSB, this was akin to mentally beating down a person until they complied. Leading up to the baptism, there would be a flurry of activity where people would feverishly confess their sins and apologize for anything and everything, even when they felt as though they had looked at someone in a bad way. Those individuals who were eligible to be baptized would then be put forward to a panel of co-workers, at times in person, and others would just be named and discussed. This panel would then discuss their impressions of the individual. They would go back to all of their interactions during their tenure at the mission. The thing is, this was very subjective. If one of the co-workers felt that a boy had looked at a girl's legs too long, or if another thought that someone hadn't prayed to their satisfaction during confession, then they would be denied being baptized. Chris explained that there was no specific criteria which the co-workers would work from. It was all up to their personal opinions on the matter, and that individual. Once this had been completed, those who were deemed worthy enough to be baptized would be announced. They would then all be baptized by full immersion in a dam. I asked JJ, not her real name, about this. She revealed that even once you were baptized, you were still scrutinized as there were male co-workers waiting on the other side of the dam, checking each person's face to see if they showed any signs of not being touched by God. Now, there were those people who did not make the cut these people would feel ashamed and unworthy. It kind of reminds me of the people at Buddhafield, which I covered in episodes 8 and 9, where those who were not deemed worthy of receiving the knowing felt very much outside of the group that did. I reached out to Mike, not his real name, about baptisms at the overseas mission where he was. He explained that they were pretty rare there as well. Another Christian practice that was very rarely practiced at the church was communion. Now, to other Christians that I've spoken to, they describe it as a symbolic ritual of God's grace. However, this may not be the case at KSB. 
On the few occasions where communion was held at KSB, you were basically told that you should only partake in communion if you are all squared away with God. In other words, only if you are completely free from sin or have confessed all of your sins. This would be emphasized by quoting from 1 Corinthians 11 verses 26 to 29. This means that every time you eat this bread and drink from this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It follows that if anyone eats the Lord's bread or drinks from his cup in a way that dishonors him, he or she is guilty of sin against the Lord's body and blood. So then, you should examine yourselves first, and then eat the bread and drink from the cup. For if people do not recognize the meaning of the Lord's body when they eat the bread and drink from the cup, they bring judgment on themselves as they eat and drink. Course explained to me that on those rare occasions where they did have communion, less than 10% of the congregants would participate, as the rest felt as if they were not good enough to partake. When I asked Mike about his experience with communion at the overseas branch, he stated, quote, We did, but very rarely, and it was my impression that many people were hesitant to take communion because they felt themselves too unworthy. I think this was essentially because in their theology, you could never really feel like you were clean before God because of the fact that every time you sinned, you felt like you lost God's favor unless you confessed to your counselor, end quote. He also told me that he doesn't think he ever took communion while he was at KSB as he never felt good enough to do it. On cultresearch.org, they describe a term called dispensing of existence. Quote, The group is the ultimate arbiter, and all non-believers are considered evil or non-people. If non-people cannot be recruited, they can be punished, even killed. This creates a us-versus-them mentality and breeds fear in the individuals who sees that one's own life depends on a willingness to obey. Here is found the merger of the individual with the belief. On Dr. Hassan's bite model, under information control, we have point three, compartmentalize information into outside versus insider doctrines. A. Ensure that information is not freely accessible. B. Control information at different levels and missions within the group. C. Allow only leadership to decide who needs to know what and when. Then under thought control, we have point one. Require members to internalize the group's doctrine as truth. A. Adopting the group's map of reality as reality. B. Instill black and white thinking. C. Decide between good versus evil. D. Organize people into us versus them, insiders versus outsiders. Under point 8, we have rejection of rational analysis, critical thinking, constructive criticism. Point 9 is forbid critical questions about the leader, doctrine or policy allowed. Point 10 is labeling alternative belief systems as illegitimate, evil or not useful. And then under emotional control, we have point 8, which is phobia indoctrination. 
inculcating irrational fears about leaving the group or questioning the leader's authority. A. No happiness or fulfillment possible outside of the group. B. Terrible consequences if you leave. Hell, demon possession, incurable diseases, accidents, suicide, insanity, 10,000 reincarnations, etc. C. Shunning those who leave. Fear of being rejected by family and friends. D. Never a legitimate reason to leave. Those who leave are weak, undisciplined, unspiritual, worldly, brainwashed by family or a counsellor, or seduced by money, sex or rock and roll. Okay, I know this was an earful, but I promise this is getting to a point. Remember last week, when we unpacked some of the terminology and when we were discussing hearing how the true way led me to my way or the highway, and then the song Highway to Hell by ACDC? Well, I found some recollections from ex-members which tie into this. On Newframe.com, Ntobeko Hlela tells her story in two parts in an article called Growing Up in Kwasi Sabantu. She opens part two with the following. Quote, We were told relentlessly that there is only one way to God, and that is the Kwasi Sabantu way. All other churches and other ways of worshipping are not right. There is only one way, and that is the KSB way. End quote. There are a few stories that recount how they were taught that KSB was the only true way to get salvation, and that anyone outside was wrong and even at times evil. In an open letter to KSB, which I found on ksbalert.com, Somerset Somi Morkel says the following, I do not have to tell you about the judgment issue. Kwasi Sabantu uses it abundantly, and in fact, misuses it for own measures, opinions and means. This letter is not meant as a threat, as I have read it in the letters I have received from people defending Kwasi Sabantu, and heard the Stegans, Erlo and Friedel say on many occasions, all of these, judgments of God, is threatened against those who go against Kwasi Sabantu, and the work of Kwasi Sabantu is equaled with the work of God in every respect. And this was not limited to the South African branch. Mike told me about his overseas branch. They were very disparaging towards any Christians outside the church, and were quite outspoken about that. Simply put, they considered themselves better than all other churches because of their affiliation with Kwasi Sabantu and the rules they kept. In fact, they probably would have struggled to view Christians from other churches as genuine believers. They were fearful of certain things in the outside world in general. Going to the movies and dating were forbidden, for example, and the pastor would sometimes preach against going to the city as he seemed to feel that this was an immoral place. Those, however, that did manage to leave were ostracized. Some were able to leave willingly. Others needed to actually make plans to escape. I can't even imagine what they had to go through. In a News 24 article, Exodus, they refused to let me leave. Man jumps boundary wall to get away from mission, which was dated on 19 September 2020. Tyron Reinecke relates his story. He happened across a branch of the mission in the Free State 
called Goldfields, when he was looking for a place to sleep and earn some money on his way to KZN at the beginning of 2020. He was made to confess, and when he shared his story of drug use in his youth, they booked him in at the rehab at the KZN branch for just over three weeks, even though at that point his only vice was smoking cigarettes. Besides being made to board in a room with around 40 other males, he also stated, All they did was try and pray away the addiction. They don't understand the first thing about it, that it's a mental thing. There was no medication, it was just cold turkey. But I digress. When he was done with the rehab, he went back to the branch in the free state. There he worked primarily in the workshop making equipment for the mission's bakery. Initially, when he inquired about being paid for the work that he was providing, they would state that asking for remuneration was worldly things. They never paid him, and a few times when he did try to leave, they placated him by promising that his payment would come. It never did. One of his last attempts at leaving was confessing to his counsellor that he had felt that God wanted him to go to Cape Town. In the article, he quotes, He told me I should kill myself. I lost it. He said sorry, but I asked to be left alone. One morning, when he tried to leave, they refused to open the gates for him. So later that day, he threw his bag over the mission wall and fled. One of his uncles managed to help him with a bus ticket to Cape Town. When he contacted his seniors back at the bakery to give him just a thousand rand, which is about $66, to help him get himself back on his feet, quote, one called me and said I'm full of the world and there's more to life than just money, end quote. Another of these escapes is the story of Amanda. This is not her real name, but the one used in the News 24 article Exodus, locked in a room and raped as a spiritual hiding, woman alleged horrible ordeal. I'm not going to go into the horrible details of her ordeal. It's not that it's not important, because all of the victim stories are. It's just very hard to cover. You can read about it in the article. I will, however, cover how she got out. Her one aunt called a lawyer as she had become worried and wanted to know where her niece was. They eventually managed to organize to get Amanda taken to the Peter Maritzburg High Court, stating that a prosecutor wanted to see her. Her counselor accompanied her, but the counselor was sent away so that they could speak to Amanda alone, and they managed to get her away from the mission. Those who chose to leave needed to jump through hoops to get out. Journalist Sipo Hlongwane, in an interview on Cape Talk, explained how hard it was for him to get out. Even though he made the choice, they still made it very hard for him. He also explained, quote, What kind of person can say I am making that choice, when the choice on the one hand is obeying, but on the other hand, not only do you get beaten, but you may lose everything your job, your family, your mind, that happens to people who leave there. The price of leaving is extreme, and then you are telling me I'm making a free choice there? No, of course not. End quote. In a News 24 article called I Will Never Go Back, Leaving Kwasi Sabantu After More Than Two Decades, 
Former KSB member Gert de Vries describes the following, quote, I remember how they used to put down those who have left the mission, especially people who have fallen on hard times or have had something unfortunate happen to them. We would be warned that this is what happens when you turn your back on the mission, end quote. Then there are those that get kicked out. I briefly referred to this when I was covering Selimpilo's story, but sadly, hers was not the only one. Mike told me of an incident that had happened at the mission where he attended. Now before I start, I do not have the names of these individuals, so for the purposes of retelling, I will be assigning them made-up names. Kim and George were a prominent couple within the overseas mission. Their son Barry had cut ties with the church and the mission. Barry soon started dating a woman and eventually asked her to marry him. Kim and George refused to attend Barry's wedding, as he had not been married in the KSB way. Another couple, who was also part of that congregation, I will call them Peter and Nikki, decided that they would attend Barry's wedding. As you can imagine, Peter and Nikki got into trouble and were deemed as rebellious because of this. So a meeting with the entire congregation was called by Friedel Stegen. He basically made the congregation choose between Peter and Nikki and their actions, or the church. The arguments between the couples and the rest of the church became quite heated, and some even started shouting. The couple was basically shown the door, and it was made clear to them that they were no longer welcome at the church. During the heated arguments going on, Peter and Nikki's sons became so distraught that they were crying hysterically. The thing is, their eldest son decided to stay loyal to the mission. If you're asking yourself why somebody would do that, well, I've got two thoughts on this. The first one is trauma bonding. If you recall in episode 4, where we covered Heaven's Gate, I spoke about a book called The Betrayal Bond, Breaking Free of Exploitative Relationships, by Patrick J. Carnes, PhD. In this book, he lays out how people at times will form a bond with the person or group or organization that is causing them trauma. Among the signs that show that you have formed a betrayal bond, there is point five, where you obsess about showing someone that he or she is wrong about you, your relationship, or the person's treatment of you. Point six, which is when you feel stuck because you know what the person is doing is destructive but believe that you cannot do anything about it. And point nine, when someone's talents, charisma and contributions cause you to overlook destructive, exploitative or degrading acts. So in my opinion, he may have formed a trauma bond with the leader and or group. My second thought around this is the teaching at the mission. There were numerous accounts of people describing how they were taught to fear the outside world. Daniel Schricker, PhD, wrote a four-part examination on the role of fear in the theology and practices of Kwasisabantu and the psychological implications for children. In part four of his analysis, he outlines the fear of the outside world. He opens up with the words, quote, The final essay in the series will focus on the fear of the world outside of Kwasisabantu, which was instilled in children. This was primarily achieved in two ways. 
by presenting the mission station as a utopia to the children, and by characterizing the outside world as dangerous and morally inferior. Later in the essay, he writes To reinforce the idea that the mission is the only God ordained utopia in a dangerous world, many aspects of society were unnecessarily demonized in the minds of children. This was almost always done explicitly, with the intention to foster a fear of the outside world. In my opinion, if you combine an incredible fear of the outside world with a bond built through trauma, you will most likely stay where you are. I guess it's a case of better the devil you know. Once people have left the mission, either by choice or by being told to leave, they then have to face a whole new host of not only emotional, but in some cases financial issues. Most of the people who lived at the mission earned little to no money, and definitely didn't have any savings or some form of pension fund. They were given free accommodation and food at the mission, so if anyone left, they literally had to start from scratch. And for those who had grown up at the mission, well, they had no outside reference other than what they had been taught, so they needed to learn how to function in mainstream society all by themselves. In one of my conversations with Luke Lombrach, I asked him if there was anywhere a person could go which could help them adjust back into what we would call normal life. He said that for the most part, people could go to shelters, but these are short-term, and they're not really equipped to assist people who leave destructive groups to learn the skills that they need. Some are lucky and can depend on family members outside of the group, but others are not that lucky. Mariki Botma describes in her News 24 interview how she ended up becoming a street child. She would sing in the streets to try to make some money. While being homeless, she was gang-raped and stabbed 16 times. Thank goodness she survived that. And a few months later, a pastor offered her shelter and helped her back onto her feet. Dealing with things that we take for granted can be mammoth and an emotionally taxing task. And, even when people physically leave these groups, they still at times have the habits, thoughts and vocabulary that they were taught, which are foreign to others in broader society. In her book, Erika Borman refers to a day after she had gotten out, when a colleague of hers took her shopping. He had commented on the way she had dressed, which was still very much in line with the teaching at the mission. This colleague, who she calls Gareth in the book, takes her to Truworths, which is a clothing retail chain here in South Africa, and helps her pick out a pair of jeans. Let me let her tell you in her own words, quote, Gareth insists I leave the shop wearing my new purchase. He can't be seen walking next to me in my old-fashioned clothes, he laughs. And, for the first time in my life, I feel sexy. Not that I know that's what I'm feeling. Sexy is most definitely not a word that is in my lexicon. At the same time, I feel ashamed and sinful. I'm convinced that once I step out onto the street, a bolt of lightning will come down and God will strike me dead for wearing this evil piece of clothing. End quote. Mike told me the heart-wrenching story about how, 
Around a year after he had finally gotten out of the mission, the entirety of his time at the mission came crashing down around him. He told me how the psychological impact of what he had gone through growing up at the mission hit him so hard that he had a complete nervous breakdown, which lasted about a year and almost cost him his life. In our next episode, we will be looking into some of the investigations that took place after the news broke. We will set some things right, and we will see what those who defend the mission have to say. Once again, I must say a very special thank you to Mike, JJ, and Kurs Griev. They have been so amazing in their trust in me and giving me the opportunity to tell the story factually. I cannot express in words how much I respect and appreciate you guys. Furthermore, I need to add the disclaimer in here that the Kwasi Sabantu mission denies the allegations put forward to them and part of a statement sent by them to News24 it states, quote, Even though some of the alleged incidents appear to go back 20 to 30 years, we nevertheless respect their privacy and ultimately they must themselves decide whether they wish to engage with you and respond to your report. As much as you are implying that the mission is responsible for every incident involving its congregation, we can assure you that we strive to always act within the prescripts of the law. End quote. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button and rate and review us. It will go a long way to improving the podcast and helping others find it. You can find us on Facebook and you can email us at decodingcults at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. If there are any topics around the workings of cults which you would like further explanation on, or if there is a cult that you would like to hear about, email me or post it in the Facebook group. Remember to go and check out By Design Crafts SA and Endeavor AV and tell them that I sent you. This week, I would like to say Dankeschön to my listeners in Germany. The amazing logo art was created by the tattoo artist Jock Jacobs. Thank you so much for listening.